This is Ann Doherty, founder and co-owner of Illum Advising. On today's episode of Current, I'm joined by members of the Illum team to discuss best practices in health and energy programs and to help us answer the question, how are utilities and program administrators thinking about and exploring the health and energy nexus? So with me today are Dr. Liz Kelly, a director at Illum, and Emily Morris, senior analyst who recently completed together a study of energy efficiency program offerings for one of Illum's utility clients. In today's discussion, we're going to get their take on different opportunities to impact and measure our industry's role in public health, and we'll also look at and cover some of the different considerations for partnerships, such as funding, outreach, implementation approaches, by exploring or discussing other uh, existing partnerships and programs that are really innovating in this space or have proven to be successful. And then finally, we'll discuss how states are exploring ways to account for non-energy benefits and whether our benefit cost analyses models are still relevant in their current form. Liz, Emily, it's so nice to have you guys today on the podcast. Thanks, Anne. It's so great to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm excited. It's fun to have podcasts where I get to talk to our team and hear about all the things you guys are doing, which is, you know, for better or worse, not something I get to do all the time. So it's pretty, it's pretty rad to take this time to do it. I'm glad you're here. Um, so today we're going to talk a little bit about some of your work on health and energy programs and lessons you've learned from recent projects. So with that, let's talk a little bit about your recent report. So uh, you recently produced a report looking across best practices and opportunities for health and energy programs and sort of the intersection of the two. Um, what were some of your assumptions going into the work? And then how did these assumptions prove to be true or were challenged by what you learned in that research? Hi, Anne. This is Liz. Thanks for having us. I'm so excited to speak about this and um, to be able to share some of the work that we've been doing. And the question you ask about ingoing assumptions is just such a good question and so important for any research, I think, to be thoughtful about what assumptions you bring into the project. And I will be honest, I, I hadn't done a lot of work in this area, um, and my ingoing assumption was really that there was a lot of opportunity, and that was largely the case. I do think there is a lot of opportunity. But what really stands out to me um, is just how much we need to work at a systems level. So one of the challenges with integrating measures that improve health into energy efficiency programs is ensuring that the program, which is funded through dollars from energy bills, remains cost effective. And you know, we we'll, can go into this discussion of um, non-energy impacts or non-energy benefits and how do you establish and measure that. But the framework remains one and, and of course is important that if you're going to use dollars from energy bills that there needs to be some sort of um, resulting savings. But the challenge is just a much bigger challenge that disinvestment in communities, which is you know, the cumulative effects of decades of discrimination and redlining and structural racism and financial disinvestment requires solutions that extend beyond the reach of a utility. So um, you know, some of the health and safety challenges or infrastructural challenges that can be addressed through weatherization and health programs may not be cost effective when considered in the context only of energy, but of course have a value and you know, are cost effective when considered with a broader sort of social lens. 
So the challenge is both finding ways to address them within the constraints of utility energy efficiency program models, but also then looking more broadly, I think, at solutions that extend beyond um, a traditional energy efficiency program model. My biggest surprise, I guess, was the utility involvement in this space. Um, I had done a, some research on health and energy programs that were going on in academic spaces or also in like publicly funded spaces like the um, low-income uh, weatherization, the national weatherization programs, um, but I never really thought about how the utility could get involved in that and how much access they have to customers who need these outcomes and would benefit from these outcomes. Um, and so thinking of the opportunities that utilities actually have for health and energy programs was um, a really interesting finding from this report. That's interesting. I'm excited to hear more about that. And um, Liz, can you take a moment to uh, speak to the research that informed this this work that we're talking about? What did you guys do? I, I'm glad you asked that because as we were talking, I was like, oh, this is, we just really jumped right into the weeds of things without um, providing any kind of overview. So we did a, a, it was a secondary research review and um, we looked at used an iterative approach to explore research on health and energy and how program initiatives are creatively uh, bridging the two. And in total, we reviewed 42 different utility or other programs doing this work. Um, and we highlighted within that about 12 that we thought were uh, good examples of different, you know, for different reasons of, of particular kinds of um, innovative practices. Um, and what we looked at were evaluation reports for, that are, were publicly available, conference presentations. Um, we looked at literature or systemic reviews. So a lot, um, a number of ACEEE reports that were really um, helpful in uh, laying the uh, groundwork for this space. And we also looked into academic research and um, there is a fair amount of academic research on um, energy and health outcomes and impacts, um, some of which is from outside the US. So we did it while most of the, you know, all the utility programs we reviewed were within the US, the research was actually broader than just um, domestic. Great, that's really helpful. And it is interesting when you go um, to other countries, much of the discussion around uh, efficiency and uh, energy investments, are, the benefits are construed much more broadly than we do in the US, and that's certainly true in Europe and uh, parts of the, um, the like Asia-Pacific region, like Australia and New Zealand, in my experience. And so it's interesting to think about the ways that we can learn from these countries, these nations that have been doing this longer than we have, or thinking about these things more broadly than we have. And we know um, that the pandemic in many ways ended up being this rather unfortunate but necessary catalyst essentially to start thinking about health as it relates to energies or what we might refer to as the health energy nexus. Um, you know, why are utilities looking to expand energy efficiency offerings that encompass health outcomes? Was it just the pandemic? Was there something else that might also be spurring this? And um, and more so, you know, what are the benefits that utilities see to their customers in doing this work? Sure, I can speak to this. This is Liz. 
Um, you know, it's certainly true that COVID brought ventilation and respiratory health to the forefront of conversations in new ways. I um, recall seeing an article last summer when restaurants near me opened at a limited capacity for indoor dining that cited ASHRAE guidelines, which struck me as surely the first time that ASHRAE was in the dining section of the newspaper. Um, so I think there's an increased attention to ventilation, and we have seen um, from our clients' interest in new technologies to improve indoor ventilation. Um, so I know we did a blog a few weeks ago about some technologies of uh, bipolar ionization and UV light filtration that are these technologies to um, improve uh, air quality inside. Of course, more seriously, the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on black and brown communities highlighted existing inequalities in our society, including health disparities. So um, data on, on health shows that black children experience asthma at more than twice the rate of white children and are hospitalized at greater rates. Um, that said, to your question about the like why are utilities looking to expand offerings that encompass health? I don't actually think that that's a response to the pandemic, though it may be top of mind in light of the pandemic. Um, weatherization programs have you know, sort of health and safety barriers that have present, prevented, excuse me, weatherization programs from serving eligible or otherwise eligible customers um, has been a challenge that weatherization programs have addressed or been working to address over the last several years. And um, many of the programs that we did highlight in the report were in operation you know, prior to the pandemic. So I don't think it's a response to the pandemic so much as an attempt to expand the reach of programs and recognize opportunities for programs to better serve their customers. And in terms of like, what are the benefits to the, to the utility and to the customer, from um, a utility program perspective, a key benefit is reaching additional customers or participants through additional funding or leveraging um, partner resources, or perhaps you know, reaching customers who might otherwise be uneligible because of health and safety considerations. Um, and for customers, there's efficiencies in service provision. So in terms of um, labor delivery and like time saved for customers who only need to coordinate with one set of trade allies in their home because one set of, of trade allies are going to come in and do weatherization and pest mitigation and removal of carpeting and other kinds of health um, concern, like things that can create allergies um, or worsen allergies. Um, similarly, reduced cost of hospital and healthcare expenses as a result of improved air quality um, or increased thermal health is obviously a benefit to, to um, to customers and increase tenure in a home due to greater energy affordability. So if your energy bills are lower and that means you can pay your bills then and stay in your home, that's obviously a benefit to customers. And finally, I think that just ad addressing or um, addressing historic harms. So in many cases, the communities, neighborhoods and homes that are in most need of weatherization and energy efficiency, you know, can benefit from energy efficiency program assistance are in areas that have been redlined or experienced discrimination and disinvestment. And so, um, so the, to my mind, those are all the reasons, like those are the benefits for both the, the specific utility customers for utility programs and just sort of generally a, a social benefit. That's interesting. And as you said, you know, um, pulling, calling out sort of the, the ways in which these historic processes are still sort of very much present in the housing stock that are, utility customers are looking to serve right now. And in fact, uh, you may recall we did a webinar um, last year and I'm 
terrible because I can't remember the name of the exact one, but um, Eric Arnold spent a lot of time kind of talking about um, redlining practices. He's a client of ours at Georgia Power and um, had some really uh, wonderful um, ways of kind of talking through these long and, and very difficult challenges for the utility, but based on the, you know, these practices, as you've discussed, Liz, that um, have long predated the uh, housing that we're trying to treat, for lack of a better term now. Um, so as we think about um, health, kind of along those lines, we can't really talk about health without actually talking about buildings themselves. And so when you think about ways that um, the team is assessing or has assessed buildings um, and housing quality and human health, what are some of the things that um, that you're looking at? How are you making those assessments? That's such a great question, Anne. Uh, this is Liz. I. Um, it's funny that you mentioned Eric Arnold's what he what he said on the in that webinar because I was thinking about that as we were thinking through this. I was like, oh, this is exactly the point that Eric Ar Arnold made. So um, yes, echoing echoing him and other voices. Um, with respect to buildings, uh, so one of the things we looked at that. Um, had to do with um, a, a framework of the nine foundations of healthy buildings, which came out of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And that framework includes ventilation, thermal health, moisture control, and other elements that are really deeply impacted by energy efficiency improvements. And the framework is, is you know, coming out of a public health school, it's really oriented to public health. But um, what was interesting to me is that even as they identified measures to improve each element, so measures that would improve ventilation or thermal health or, um, or, or moisture control, and many of which in, involved or related to energy and impacts um, related to each category, they, these improvements could impact energy bills and, and a lot of them related to energy efficiency, but there was not the, the the link wasn't made in, the, in those documents to energy efficiency programs, to reductions in energy bill, and then a subsequent benefit of if your bill is lower, there are other, other benefits. Um, and so to me, it was this, just such an interesting reflection of the fact that we have weatherization programs or we have energy efficiency programs that are operated by utilities and we have public health programs that are operated um, by health or organi like organizations oriented to public health. Um, whether from the state or through hospital networks or, or other healthcare networks. And there are these moments where they're intersecting, but they're overall not necessarily talking to each other, even when they're talking about things like building health, which are so deeply connected. So um, yeah, so that was one of the things that I just thought was, was so interesting in, to see in this research. And, and a lot of the programs that we highlighted really did try and, and explicitly address building health or the challenges of building health um, and, and housing quality. And so in the, um, in the research we did, we talked about um, a number of different outcomes from different programs. So we looked at energy outcomes, so such as energy bill savings, um, reduced energy use and energy security. We also looked at health outcomes, including hospital admissions and doctor's visits, health costs, self-reported health status, um, sort of number of, of days in a month that a person is in good health or poor health, 
um, some quality of life indicators, and then missed school or work days or absenteeism, which is also another indicator of health. And then the last kind of category of outcomes that we looked at um, at different programs. So this was in a, a sort of review of um, evaluation reports and conference presentations and academic research on um, different utility programs and other programs. Um, we, the other sort of key component was housing quality. And so the metrics there are around indoor environmental quality, um, indoor air quality, health and safety, um, and sort of readiness for weatherization, as well as mold, mildew, moisture, and pest mitigation. It's interesting to think about um, these sort of metrics with respect to um, all, like well-being and wellness, because a lot of the things we talk about health are also just about having a, you know, a safe, comfortable, inhabitable home that feels like a place you want to be. And so there is this sort of broader benefit, it sounds, of all of these, you know, measures being put in place of just in, enhancing comfort and enhancing the sense of well-being, you know, Absolutely. outside of the fundamentals of health and energy efficiency. So Emily, I haven't heard from you in a while, so I want to ask you a, a question. Um, so let's talk about the ways that our industry measures health outcomes and calculates savings. How are states from the work that you guys were doing accounting for non-energy benefits in their benefit cost analyses? Um, what are the challenges to these frameworks and how, how are they thinking about health? Yeah, I'll talk to the challenges first, just because of what Liz just mentioned about all the different types of outcomes across energy, uh, health, and housing. And I think one of the biggest challenges there is that there are so many different types of outcomes. They mean different things to different people. And what you need for a benefit cost analysis is an agreed upon source and metric that somebody's going to bring to the table in a stakeholder conversation where something gets entered into a BCA legislation and application. And that has to have a good source that everybody agrees upon. So there's a real need for these metrics to be standardized and also localized. Because um, even if you have something national, like the EPA, for example, I just saw has some like regional adders about um, health benefits per KWH for outdoor air quality. So, you know, that's a little different that it's outdoor air quality and it's like these really large regions. So then the conversation would be, you know, how do we get to a, a unit that is local to my service territory and meaningful to my customers? And that's a like just really complex conversation to have. Um, so in terms of who's accounting for them, I can talk to New York State for sure. Um, Non-energy benefits are in the benefit cost analysis handbook in New York State, but are they being applied? Unfortunately not um, for that same miscellaneous definition reason. You know, maybe they can be applied in sensitivity analyses, but for actual regulatory, regulatory filings, um, you're not gonna see them in uh, those actual documents. So um, it's good that there is room in handbooks and legislation for, for these interpretations, like at least it is in there. So you know that a conversation can happen about it in the future, but actual practical application is probably a 
the biggest gap in a lot of places. Our work at Illum is often centered around the customer experience. We, as a part of our core mission, really look to, you know, bring the lived experiences of people into conversation with all these policies and programs that are being put in place. What did you learn about programs that use listening and empathy to design solutions as part of your work? So as an anthropologist, I think that, you know, this is a question around centering customer experience and using listening and empathy to design solutions. And as an anthropologist, I think that beginning by listening to understand what people's concerns are and drawing on that empathy to design solutions or programs that meet people's needs and meet people's actual needs, not what like their perceived needs or what you think they need um, is critical. And so one of the programs that we highlighted in the memo was the Bronx Healthy Buildings Program. And that program is a very collaborative program that has something like 14 partners or stakeholders. And um, it stood out to me because it's collaborative in nature and based in a community and, and the guiding principle includes collective decision-making with community members at the center of that decision-making. And I think that is relatively unique among the programs that we, we, um, we looked at or, and, and programs in this space in general, and really it can be a model for um, productive partnerships between um, community organizations, community groups, um, healthcare, like a, a hospital network and healthcare networks and the weatherization program. Um, and, and unique or something that was another thing that was interesting about this program was that they also worked to um, cultivate non-adversarial relationships between tenants and landlords. So they were working with tenants in a building and the landlords and the hospital network or a medical network and um, weatherization program providers all together to, to connect. So the way that um, that to implement the program. So the, what, how that worked was that program res representatives engage residents to determine interest and work with residents and building owners collaboratively. Um, once they had that buy-in, community health workers performed home visits to conduct an environmental and health assessment, schedule energy audits, and then um, the energy efficiency and structural improvements included insul in installing insulation, LED bulbs, air sealing, replacing windows, and providing mold and pest remediation. Um, and they did a bunch of pest, pest mediation, um, addressing pest infestations. And it has served, the program served um, hundreds of residents in the Northwest Bronx and have saved up to 20% on their electric bills and reduced allergens leading to a 91% reduction in hospital admissions and 65% reduction in avoidable school absenteeism caused by asthma. So, um, I mean, that's a small, sample size, single program, but I, to me, that was a really inspiring model of um, collaboration across multiple stakeholders that begins with collective de decision-making, that begins with listening to the needs of the, you know, people who are um, at the, you know, the people whose health are, we're talking about, the people who are the residents of buildings that are receiving weatherization. And it, um, what you're describing, too, is a model that it addresses a lot of the underlying social barriers that, um, that present themselves in getting things done in, particularly, as you said, sort of multifamily housing and housing that uh, perhaps needs a number of issues addressed, but is difficult to, to do. Um, and the idea of um, bringing together tenants and uh, landlords or building owners is a really interesting 
way of thinking about that challenge and empathy building, as you said, as a sort of tool for making sure these programs are successful. So it's a very interesting thing to, to think through um, as we you know, see our clients work toward designing new models for um, addressing health. Um, are there any other programs or partnerships that you're seeing between healthcare companies, nonprofits, or utilities that you think we should take a look at? CERTA is partnering with the New York State Department of Health and Medicaid's value-based payment framework to conduct home improvements that reduce asthma risk and improve indoor air quality um, in combination with weatherization and energy, energy efficiency measures. So um, I think what's, what's new about that model is the Medicaid involvement, and they're going to be referring patients with um, asthma symptoms to this program. Um, so I guess like that targeting of people who would see the biggest outcome um, is pretty unique to that program. Um, and also that, you know, the medical side is buying into the fact that something like this could really reduce medical costs, um, which is an incentive for them, for sure. Um, and one other one that, that we saw was um, the One Touch program. Um, so we looked at the One Touch program in Vermont, but it's actually the One Touch program is kind of like an umbrella program that exists in other states as well. Um, and it was founded by Ellen Tone, who um, has, has actually done a ton of work on weatherization program evaluations. Um, and yeah, I guess she founded the One Touch program after doing these evaluations when she worked at, um, she worked at like NREL or ORNL or one of the national labs when doing those evaluations. But yeah, so her company One Touch um, in Vermont is generally, um, One Touch is generally a program that uses a collaborative electronic referral system between um, weatherization assistance partners. And in Vermont, they also partner with Efficiency Vermont, the um, energy efficiency program administrator there, and also community-based organizations. The program is free for participants. Um, they receive a one-touch checkup with measures including weatherization, ventilation upgrades, lead abatement, um, carbon monoxide testing, getting at some other you know, safety issues in the home, um, and combustion, combustion safety testing. But they also partner with um, the University of Vermont's Medical Center um, and a fires prevention program to reduce like fall hazards um, and injury prevention in the home. Um, and I think one last unique thing about the One Touch program, specifically in Vermont, is that it also refers participants to education programs where they can find out about smoking cessation and health insurance. So it's a, it sounds like an incredibly comprehensive program in terms of what they're trying to do. And I assume that's the origin of the name One Touch. I think affair? I think it was the first one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, and yes, yeah. It's definitely customer oriented in that, like, a customer should have one place to go to find all of these beneficial services, and probably cuts down on time for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's um, 
uh, someone I know once said to me that it, you know, and I thought this was a really poignant statement that it's actually quite difficult and a part-time job or, or more just trying to find access to the, all these disparate services. And that, you know, it does require an incredible amount of savvy and also energy and persistence. And so the idea of uh, consolidating some of those, you know, under one umbrella is, I imagine, a huge benefit to people who need um, services or could benefit from services. So very interesting. Go ahead, Liz, what were you going to say? Yeah, I, I absolutely. I was thinking um, of two examples from research that we've done in evaluations in Massachusetts and, and for the, we have Illum evaluated the um, their low-income weatherization, lower and moderate income weatherization program a couple of years ago. And I was doing ride-alongs with the contractors and also interviews with customers. And one of the things that people mentioned was that when you have multiple, you know, just this sort of barrier of like having to reschedule, having you have someone come in to do an assessment and they have to come back. And if they can't do the installation in one day, then that's how many times you have to reschedule your work shifts or how many times do you have to arrange for, um, you know, childcare or something else um, while they're doing work in your home. And so just the idea of streamlining that um, is so, is so important to protect people's time. Um, and, and then the other instance was we did a study um, that I know Laura Shower has talked a lot about the non-participant barrier study. And um, I was involved doing um, intercept interviews at community organizations. And again, talking to people about the, um, the na- navigating structures of, of public assistance or, or um, the times that they were the time it took and the effort and the energy and the savvy and the like collective knowledge to like, when you, when this is the situation, then you need to go through this pathway. And if this is the situation, then you need to go through this pathway. And if you have this situation, you need to, then, then these are the pathways that apply to you um, was overwhelming and exhausting. And, and then when we were there talking about energy efficiency, it sort of emphasized the, the lack of relevance of, of maybe LED light bulbs being top of mind for someone who's navigating these, these difficult systems. But yeah, I think it's actually a really great point and, um, and also sort of suggests what the reticence to engage in yet another yeah. program that might have requirements um, that like may I, in relatively be low priority. Yeah, and documentation, what do you have to show and where do you have to go mm-hmm. and who do you have to call and, are, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as we are thinking forward, what do you all see as the next steps for utilities and program administrators who are listening to this call and wondering if they should do more for their customers but don't really know how? As we've lived through this last year of the pandemic where separation and like being incapacitated in your, your own home as the world falls apart around you, I want to just sort of validate that feeling of like, I don't know what to do. Um, but my advice, and again, as an anthropologist, that's where I sort of begin with, is um, to begin with listening. Listen to the communities you work in. What are their concerns? What are your customers asking for? Begin with listening to ensure that whatever solutions you do stand up are actually meeting real needs. Um, And so what does that look like? I mean, I think that looks like talking to people. I think that looks like listening. You know, what are people asking for? What are the programs? If programs are undersubscribed, why are they, you know, what's the gap or the challenge? And um, 
And then secondly, look at what, to the question of energy and health, look at what your program, current programs are doing and where there may be health impacts that aren't being measured because a relatively low, potentially low lift, though complicated, not to minimize the complication, is to look to start including questions about health impacts. So um, some of the, the studies that Emily was mentioning, some of the, the weather, the measure, the, excuse me, the weatherization measures or insulation, it's not actually any different than what other programs are doing. The only difference is in who's measuring it. So are you, are you asking questions about the impact of health? Um, and so being able to establish that as a baseline of actually, you know, this program does have this impact can provide a leg to stand on and connect in discussing BCAs and, and advocating for um, consideration of health impacts in, in those calculations. But it also um, can be a way to then create partnerships. So my third, after listening to community voices, reflecting on what current programs are doing, then building partnerships with organizations to expand the reach of programs and you know, identify those opportunities to streamline touch points like the, the One Touch program or to create collaboration with across organizations like the Bronx Healthy Building Program. So that is what I would say. Easy, right? We just... <laughs> Just, no, I know. just do it. Yeah. Just do it. No, I, yeah. it's so much more easier to say than easier said than done. And uh, but thank you for the opportunity to chat today. And this has been yeah. No, this has been great. It's been really fun to talk through all of these considerations and also to really be able to engage this work in earnest. And I'm excited that our team is able to do it through this project. And I, I hope that we have more opportunities to even dig deeper and, and do more of this work because I know it's really. Um, close to the hearts of a lot of folks at Illum. And so, um, you know, we would love to be able to do more of it. Um, so in closing, um, thanks Liz and Emily for taking the time to go through this podcast with me um, and for being our guests today. We hope to have you back in future episodes and um, to catch up on more of your work as you guys uh, continue to move this and other projects forward. Um, for those listening, again, this is Ann Doherty and you're listening to Current. Current is produced by Loom's production team, music by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll see you next time.